News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, every once in a while, we'll come across an article and you just sit back and you're like, man, that actually happened. It's a really cool article uh, that came out a little bit earlier this week on theconversation.com about solar panels and Canada's tie to said solar, uh, I, I guess you would say, innovation well ahead of its time. We go overseas to, uh, this is a great story, by the way, if you want to know about true Canadiana here. And yet we get the story uh, from overseas. Dr. Sugandha Srivasta, kind enough to join me, British Academy postdoctoral fellow and lecturer in environmental economics at the University of Oxford. Doctor, does that all fit on a business card? <laughs> just about, Rob. Uh, just about. <laughs> it's very impressive, as is the article that you wrote. You know, it was really engaging. Um, thinking of all the things we've done in the last hundred plus years with fossil fuels, but realizing that there could have been an alternative much earlier than what we've most recently discovered. That's right. It was honestly, um, I fell down a rabbit hole trying to look for the first solar patent. And then there was George Cove, this Canadian inventor who had already done it in 1906. Um, and I was just baffled. I, I thought I was dreaming when I saw that. I'm amazed because let's put this into context. I mean, 1906, somebody from Canada creates a solar panel that, of course, would be very environmentally friendly. And then all of a sudden, as you go down the rabbit hole, you find out that he was abducted. Yes. So you can imagine how this night was unfolding. First of all, I didn't expect a patent in solar to exist in 1906. The conventional story is that solar started during the space race, uh, or, or maybe maybe you can go back to the 1950s. So, so to see something from 1906 was already shocking. And then you fast forward and, you know, in 1909, it turns out that Cove was kidnapped and the conditions for his release were to give up the solar business entirely. So at that point, I was not even trying to be sensationalist, but the, you know, the report in the New York Herald that talked of his kidnapping, I mean, you know, the facts were there. It, it was really to, to shut down his business. <laughs> And you think of the fossil fuel industry, all that competition and all those aggressive tactics, and then all of a sudden solar pops up, but there was, uh, what is it, doctor, a 30, 40-year gap in the technology of solar? Exactly. So when it's revived, it's 40 years later, and during those 40 years, you know, standard oil and the fossil fuel paradigm has become embedded. So it's a very, very different story once, you know, solar comes back again. And I think that's the really interesting thing, because it's a different thing when you compete at the start of a race. But when one technology has already had a 40-year head start, mm -hmm. then it's a very different type of competition. We talked about him getting abducted, but was George Cove ever released? Was he found? And if he was released, how did he get out? <laughs> so he was found near Bronx Zoo. We don't know what terms they agreed to, but what we can see in the historical record is that the year after the kidnapping, the company was deregistered. Uh, there was no further endeavors related to solar. And in fact, Cove did keep inventing, but he switched to other technologies. So he never revisited solar. Isn't that so something? That, that, that is the part that's shocking. And I think, you know, if we think of the historical context of what fossil fuel companies were doing back then, we need to remember that business practices in 1906 were very different. So we don't have the type of norms and laws around responsible business conduct that we do today. In fact, you could create mega monopolies and that was fine, right? Standard Oil is one of the largest monopolies humanity has ever seen. Mm. And, and today that would be illegal. We could never build an empire that large. But back then it was possible. So, so I think, you know, we need to remember as modern listeners that it was a completely different world back then. You could buy out competitors. You could be very aggressive. It, it was a different time in our history. 
very quickly, Doctor, and I do appreciate this conversation. In your article, you used Wright's Law to hypothesize that had George not been cu- uh, kidnapped, renewable energy could have become cheaper and probably even more accessible than coal as early as 1997. How did you come to that conclusion? Right. So basically, there's this um, law that the more we make of something, the better we become at it and the cheaper it becomes. And for solar, this has been happening since the 1970s up to the present day, where with every doubling of production, there's about a 20 percent reduction in unit costs. And this is very stable, this trend. So all I do is I just do a thought experiment what if we didn't have a 40-year gap? And what if we kept working on solar from 1910 continuously? Then how much sooner would solar have become the cheapest form of electricity in the world? And it turns out that that number with a set of assumptions, comes, you know, it, it becomes 1997. In reality, when you know, solar became cheaper than coal in around 2017. So that's a very significant kind of result in terms of when solar would have become cheaper. And that matters because the technology we deploy is often the cheapest, right? Mm-hmm. We want electricity to be affordable, so we pick the cheapest technology to deploy. Well, doctor, thank you for going down the rabbit hole. Myself and my listeners, thank you for it. Let's do this again. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Dr. Suganda Srivastav, kind enough to join us from the University of Oxford. What a great story. I think I'll post that on my Twitter just to make sure. And don't forget, you can always follow up and listen to that on the podcast. If you didn't get it at the beginning, you're like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. You can always find it at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. UN experts have warned that Gaza is being strangled by Israel's week-long siege and aerial bombardment. Now there are concerns that a further escalation and a lack of safety for fleeing civilians could actually risk drawing regional foes into the long-running conflict. But what's happening on the ground right now? Global News Europe Bureau Chief Crystal Gmansing, kind enough to join us now from Jerusalem with the latest. Crystal, good morning. We've been hearing about a potential ground offensive against Hamas Set to hit northern Gaza, have there been any recent exchanges in the north, and how are people preparing for this expected ground offensive? Well, in the north, it's a bit of a different situation. So you have the border between Lebanon and Israel. There has been sort of a tense situation, an exchange between Hezbollah firing rockets towards Israel and Israel responding. That has been going on for, for several days. The IDF, the Israeli, uh, Israel Defense Forces, is saying that it hasn't reached the point where it's going to become an actual front, another front in its war against Hamas, bringing Hezbollah into this, uh, into this conflict. But at this point, it is something that is being watched. Israel has moved in a lot of troops to the north. They are warning individuals to, to be careful in that zone. They've cleared out residents from the area. So it is an area that is being watched. There are tensions, but it is yet to boil over. And it's really that regional conflict, that, that conversation between different milit- and militant organizations, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, and of course, you know, Iran is a player in this because it is involved with Hezbollah and with uh, Hamas. And so it is just a watch and see situation. But we have heard, you know, officials in Iran saying the bombardment, the relentless strike, airstrikes on Gaza must stop or there will uh, sort of be a quote, shockwave uh, towards Israel. So it is being watched. It is a tense situation in the north. But it's not the, the, um, the front that we're seeing between Israel and, and Gaza. And that is the main area. And you did talk about the fact that, you know, lots of talk about the ground offensive that hasn't happened as of yet. It's been aerial strikes, relentless aerial strikes. Uh, we have heard from Israeli officials saying with uh, American President Joe Biden coming, arriving tomorrow in Israel on Wednesday, that won't affect their plans. But they are saying that, you know, they are still preparing, they are still organizing, uh, and, and what people are see- seeing and talking about may not be exactly what they do when, when the time comes. You know, Crystal, my eyebrows raised when I first heard that Joe Biden was going only because it's at the beginning of a conflict. When he went into Ukraine, it was obviously a month or so in, and some of the tension had dissipated. But this is right in the middle of an active conflict. How risky is this choice and how significant is the visit? Well, risky because, of course, you never quite know what is going to happen. Uh, yesterday, there were air raid sirens right across Israel. We saw when the uh, American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was in town, there was an air raid siren. He had to be moved 
to a shelter. There was also the um, session going on at the Knesset where uh, parliamentarians had to go and seek shelter. So you never really do know what will happen. However, it does speak to just the critical nature of what is going on here and the need for diplomacy, the need for talks, and to try to figure out a plan. And the plan is specifically, the need for help is specifically to deal with a humanitarian crisis that is just spiraling in Gaza. We know that there is all sorts of desperately needed aid on the border with Egypt. It is not being moved in yet. Israel, of course, put up a blockade, stopping any shipments of food, water, uh, fuel, any of those needed items. So right now, the priority seems to be the diplomatic situation of coming up with some kind of way to help all of those millions of individuals who are in Gaza who are considered to be innocent civilians. And of course, we know that under the the international rules of war, civilians are never to be targeted. Uh, And so there has to be some sort of plan to either move them out or get them to an area that's considered safe and protected uh, where we won't see them uh, potentially victimized by by airstrikes um, conducted by Israel. Crystal Gaman saying Global News Europe Bureau Chief joining us here this morning. Have there been any updates on how many people are being detained by prison services in the area? Yeah, that's actually a new number that we just received. So Israeli Prison Service came out today and said that they, uh, and you said this is a new number we hadn't seen before, they are saying that they are detaining 118 individuals. These are individuals who stormed the border and took part in those uh, events on October 7th. Uh, so we are getting a little bit more information. We just know the number. They're not saying necessarily how they were involved or what was going on. Uh, but we do now have a number. We know that they are detained one would assume, based on the need to get collect more information, that intelligence gathering is a part of that. And it was just a couple of days ago that we were invited in to um, sort of see some of the weapons that were seized by the Israelis from the sites around uh, some of the communities, the, the kibbutz, where we saw the, the militant sort of storm in. And, and, and um, you know, that's where we saw more than a thousand people killed and of course uh you know a number missing and and, uh, potentially uh kidnapped uh so we know that there is a lot of work going on to still understand what happened on october 7th and how israel will sort of move forward with as much information as possible so new numbers from the israeli prison service saying they are detaining 118 individuals who did storm the border uh back on october 7th And Crystal, one final one for you. The last time you came on the show, I was listening in the morning. You mentioned the catastrophic state of Gaza. What's the latest on that? It it, it is just a a spiraling humanitarian situation. We are hearing globals in contact with with individuals on the ground, uh, aid agencies, and and, and a doctor in particular who's working at the main hospital. And, and, you know, he was telling stories of, of course, every day there was fewer doctors, fewer doctors because they're dealing with loss of life, loss of family members. Their homes are being destroyed. He talked about just the hospital being overrun. People are seeking shelter in it. They're sleeping in corridors. They're sleeping in hallways. They don't have enough, um, you know, power to, to... run the water systems to properly you know, sterilize equipment. They're running out of medical supplies. Uh, and that's just one location. You're seeing this all over different aid agencies saying we need to be able to help people. We need to be able to feed people. And of course, they need to be able to get water to individuals. At one point, we did hear from Israeli officials saying they were going to partially turn back on water in the, in the south. But we, uh, you know, from, from what we're seeing on the ground, water is a critical issue. And of course, so many supplies sitting on the border at Rafa in, in Egypt, waiting to get across. And so that's hopefully what we'll see some progress on when the American president uh, arrives to have conversations here in Israel. And when. Crystal, continued safety, and thank you for checking in with us this morning. You're welcome. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I have been watching from 10,000 feet. I don't usually fill in on this particular show, but I will say this. When it comes to the policing situation in Surrey, I continue and continue to just scratch my head thinking, when will it be done? We go to Victoria for a man that might have the answer. The Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer here with his takes on the day. Vaughn, good morning. And good morning, Rob. And no, 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 you're not going to trap me into saying the thing in Surrey is over. I've declared that two or three times and it wasn't. So uh, we did, however, get a major development on it in the legislature yesterday. Well, let's talk about that. Mike Farnsworth introducing legislation that makes Surrey Policing Service the provider of the policing services as of yeah, today. No, it's really interesting to read the legislation because you're right. It's very straightforward. It's a 
piece of legislation goes in the House, still hasn't been passed, but the New Democrats have the votes to do that. And it says, yeah, that the Surrey Policing Services is the police force of record going forward in Surrey. And the government has given itself the power to cancel the contract with the RCMP. It's all there in legislation, all spelled out nicely, uh, slamming the door on any chance of Surrey going back to the RCMP. But there's a problem with this because <clears throat> you may remember that the last time we declared this was over was back in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Farmworth announced that Surrey's plan to go back to the RCMP wouldn't work and Surrey had to stick with transition to the Surrey Policing Services. When we asked him about that fairly high-handed declaration that Surrey Council was wrong and the province was right, um, he said, well, I have the legal authority to do this. You know, I have the authority under the Police Act. I can do this, and I am doing it, and it's over, and it's done, and it's going to happen. So the question is, yesterday we get legislation that's effectively retroactive, that effectively goes back and legalizes what Farmer did in July, why is this necessary if he had the legal authority all along? And when he got asked that yesterday, Rob, he kind of danced around. It was a, a skating performance worthy of the World <laughs> Figure Skating Championships, in my view, uh, because it turns out, I'm guessing that somebody in the government read over the legislation, looked at Surrey's court challenge and said, you know what? Maybe our powers aren't as clear-cut as we thought they were. We better clarify them. We better retroactively legalize what we did back in July. That's how I read it. I, I guess my next question for you, Vaughn, is Surrey Mayor Brendan Locke still defiant in all of this. Yes. Um, that, to me, is really something that she just, this is her hill. This is her hill. And, you know, there's two things going on there. So, I mean, the first thing is political egos. She ran on a promise to take Surrey back to the RCMP because the Surrey police service was too expensive. And she's sticking to what she promised to do. Uh, She won the election. Okay, we can say narrowly, but, you know, we've had NDP governments in the province that won narrowly too, and it didn't change the fact that they were the legal government. So she says that. But, you know, I think what's really going on here, Rob, is Surrey believes that the transition will be far more expensive than the provincial government lets on. So the big numbers we've been given, the provincial government, Rob, says we're going to give Surrey $150 million over five years to pay for the cost of transition. Surrey says that doesn't even begin to do it. Uh, Surrey's position is half a billion dollars almost $500 million over 10 years. And, you know, the council's view is that Surrey ratepayers are going to be stuck with the overrun, and that's going to mean higher taxes. So a big part of what's going on here is Brendelock won, saying, you know, I won the election. Why should I back off what I promised to do? And second of all, she wants to make sure that if the province forces Surrey, drags it kicking and screaming, and to Surrey Policing Services, that Surrey voters, when they get the property tax bills, go, yeah, well, it ain't Brenda Locke's fault. It's David Eby and Mike Farnworth. Now, we'll see whether that's what happens, but that's the political strategy. However, Rob, this legislation does contain something new in it. Yes. And it's a threat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the power in the bill, there's a clause in the bill that says the provincial government has the power to oust the Surrey Police Board, the administrator of the policing services out there, including the members on it include Brenda Locke, and install an administrator to replace the board temporarily for a time and oversee the transition. So the province is now, I would say, threatening Surrey, if there's any more intransigence out there, we've had enough. We're just going to step in and do it ourselves. Farmworth got asked about that yesterday, Rob. He said, well, we haven't decided to do that yet. No, <laughs> they haven't decided to do that yet, but the threat is obvious. So uh, this is where I get to this thing isn't over yet. Will Surrey finally go along with it, or will Brenda Locke uh, and Surrey say, okay, 
it's your police force, your job. You go ahead and make the transition and send us the bill, but let's make sure if the bills come in, we're going to make sure people know it's your decision, not ours. So it's not over. Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> it's been a great gift, uh, Rob, to oh, those of us in the commentary. I don't doubt it. I, I can't recall how many mornings Simi and I have talked about this and, uh, you know, everybody else. It's, you just keep going back to it in, in that sense. It must be awful to be a Surrey taxpayer. Oh, yeah. But I'm not one. And I'm just looking at it as well. It's a great source of column material. I hate to sound like a vulture feeding feeding off carrion, but there you go. Well, I saw it on the list of things to talk about. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to ask the question. I'm going to sit back in my lawn chair and enjoy. Vaughn, thank you for sticking around. Let's talk about this. The Premier, David Eby, getting uh, tough, if you will. I guess tough might be the right word on multiple short-term rentals. Yeah, I thought a very direct message from the Premier yesterday. The government's brought in legislation to seriously crack down on short-term rentals, vacation rentals, uh, listing multiple properties on Airbnb and the like. And what does it all mean? He says the message really to anyone with multiple units on the market. So not if you're renting out your principal residence, your home, not if you're renting out a basement suite, one of them, right? They're a backyard um, building of some sort. You, you can have, rent out your home. You can rent out one more unit. But if you've got multiple units and you're not even living in any of them or you've turned a whole house into an Airbnb hotspot or a, a floor in a condo building, the premier's message, Rob, is find a new business model. Hmm. What does he say to them? He says... If you've got multiple units in the short-term market, either convert them to long-term or sell. The government wants those units in the market for long-term rentals in the province. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, really. The provincial government is targeting what they regard as a serious explosion in the number of owners investors who have multiple units in Airbnb and the like. And in the major cities, the province is giving local governments the power to bring that to an end. Von, I haven't heard much pushback when it comes to this. Like we've heard all of the, you know, the reasoning on one side. But, you know, I talked to somebody that had an Airbnb in their portfolio and he says, I can make in a week what I would charge somebody for a month. And I've yet to hear the blowback on this. Well, there's a couple of things that they did to anticipate the pushback. So the first thing is the person who says, this is how I'm paying my mortgage. You know, my spouse and I are both working. We've got a giant mortgage and we need the revenue and we need the lucrative revenue from the basement suite or the laneway house or even, you know, uh, sometimes renting out our principal residence. This is how we're paying our mortgage. Well, the government has dealt with that, Rob, by saying you provincial uh, principal residences are off. You can do that. And if you've got a basement suite and you converted and put it in and want to make money off of it and need to, one unit you're allowed. So that's the first thing. The second pushback they were anticipating was from communities in British Columbia where there are no hotels, there are no alternatives. Airbnb is the way tourists come and stay there. And what they've done is they've exempted the 14 resort municipalities, so that's like Whistler, Sun Peaks, and they've exempted communities with populations of less than 10,000. So they tried to deal with the objections they were anticipating by creating the exemptions. However, I think there's still a big one out there, and that is um, the major communities where people, for one reason or another, tourists are choosing Airbnb. And the reason they're choosing it is because Airbnb is cheaper than the hotels, because there's a shortage of hotels. And this one, the government won't acknowledge. But, Rob, in in some cities, people are choosing Airbnb because they don't regard the downtowns of the cities they're going to as safe and appealing places. You beat me to it. Those are not being dealt with here. You know, uh, it's very interesting yesterday what happened. You asked the government for the data to back this up. 
they kind of admitted, well, they don't have an awful lot, but there's a study out of McGill. And the study out of McGill, they, they told us, uh, Ravi Kakalan, the, uh, the housing minister, said, you know, this wasn't a study paid for by Airbnb. No, it wasn't, but it was paid for by the Hotel Association. You know, the Hotel Association doesn't like Airbnb because they're competition. You've got these little boutique hotels that are not admitted to be hotels or Airbnb, but they're the competition. So, you know, the, the hotels are, 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 I guess, happy with this. You're hearing that. But I think there's a big unintended consequences aspect of this, Rob, and we won't know for a while. This thing is being phased in over 18 months. We won't know for a while the actual impact on the tourist industry. The industry has its fingers crossed that it won't have a negative impact. I'm not so sure. We'll actually be talking with that gentleman from McGill, Dr. David Wattsmuth, at uh, 7.35 today. So we'll flesh this out for the listeners a little bit more. Vaughn, before I let you go, and I do appreciate your time this morning, um, tough talk from the province. We've talked about the hotel sector. Does Airbnb, the company, have a leg to stand on when it comes to, uh, you know, fighting back in any way, shape or form? Well, their statement yesterday was this is not going to solve the problem of housing affordability. And, you know, they're probably right about that. There's so many problems involved in that. And uh, they don't think it'll actually do anything other than just discourage people from coming to your city, Uh, that it'll discourage travelers. There'll be fewer properties listed. Uh, The powers to fine and punish and regulate, we'll see how well those work. But I think They'll work better than what we have now. And the one thing I'll say about the McGill researcher is he's a nationally respected researcher. I just think that, uh, and, and I'm sure he's got a lot more insight on this than, uh, than a lot of the politicians out here. The one thing I would say is that I wish the government had told us uh, that uh, the Hotel Association was involved in, in commissioning the research. That doesn't make the research invalid. Uh, hmm. It just is something the government, I think, should have told us and they didn't. That is a neat little caveat. Thank you, Vaughn. I I do appreciate every time I fill in getting across paths with you, and thank you for the insight, and we'll do this again. Okay, thanks, Bob. (laughs) All right, my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. One of us is rocking out to that song. The other one likes (laughs) hip-hop. I like like hip-hop, too. Uh, I was, we were talking earlier this morning, so I went to Guns N' Roses last night, and as I walked up, my friend that I was meeting there was like, so after Guns N' Roses, should we just like go across the street to the Wu-Tang and Nas show? And I didn't realize that both those shows were the same night, because I usually, concerts are usually like a game time decision for me, like, I didn't decide to go to Guns N' Roses until like noon yesterday, got some tickets and, and went, you know, kind of just wait and see, you know, what, what I'm doing that night. But I fully had an intention of going to Wu-Tang and I was like, that's tonight. Oh, shoot. But we already had tickets for Guns N' Roses, which is amazing. But I, I you know, between Wu-Tang and Guns N' Roses, uh, my love is split between them, like, like children. I love them but both you, equally. But you had to see Guns N' Roses. Yeah, Wu-Tang mean, will be back sure. again. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, you know what? It, it leads us to our segment here today. Buy now, pay later. Because reality oh, is, is you had to go see Guns N' Roses knowing that chances are Wu-Tang would be back in the future. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there, there will be time. And you can't see everything because everything is so expensive. But you've probably seen this. Like, uh, It's primarily with online shops. Shopping. It's this new idea of buy now, pay later. Like oftentimes if you're going to, uh, you and I have talked about shoes, for example. Like if you're a yes. shoe collector and you go to like a shoe website, it's like you can order this now or you can do it in four payments of $25. And now retailers are starting to do that as well. Lots of places that you would purchase like clothing or sort of disposable goods, lower cost disposable goods have this four equal payments of like maybe you want to, I don't know, like a, a glassware set, four equal payments payments of $10 and, you know, really low priced type of things. And uh, I looked at that and I thought, how is this different than, than just getting a credit card, you know? But there are a lot of concerns about this new buy now, pay later model that we're starting to see in a lot more places. So I spoke with Vivek Astvanch. He is a associate professor of quantitative marketing and analytics at McGill University. He's written about this stuff as well. And I asked him just to start off, like, how is this buy now, pay later thing different than credit cards with a credit card you already have an approved line of credit for example if i have a td credit card and the credit limit is five thousand dollars 
Now that credit limit has been approved after TD inspected the money that I earn and the outflow of cash. The credit card company decides what should be your credit limit. And that is fixed. So if I have $5,000 credit limit, I will not be able to spend more than $5,000 on my credit card. Now consider BNPL. BNPL, the most critical difference is that it does not check my earnings or the debt that I have incurred. So if I am um, visiting, say, Walmart, and this could be brick and mortar, or I am at Amazon website, and I buy a product, now, at the checkout time, which is a point of sale, and suppose I'm buying a shoe of $100. At the checkout time or the point of sale, I'm, I'm given this option that either he can, I can pay $100 right now upfront, which I will pay using my credit card, debit card, or cash, or alternatively, I can pay only $25 now, and the remaining amount will be debited or will be, remo- will be t- uh, taken away from me in four bi-weekly installments all else equal i will choose the latter because of time value of money however that time value of money i know only if i'm financially educated and wise enough unfortunately most lay people do not understand the how to manage money as well so if i'm not financially erudite what i'll do is I, because no one is checking how much I earn, no one is really checking what is my current level of debt, I will buy that product and I will incur additional debt. Now, once I realize that this is plausible for me, I will say, why buy a $100 shoe? Because right now I'm paying only $25 and my mental accounting suggested that I can pay $100. So now I'll say, okay, let me buy a $400 shoe because right now I'm paying only $100. We'll worry about the future when the future arrives. Now, there are multiple problems here as well because the company that is giving you the money, which is the BNPL or the financial technology provider, is also incurring a huge risk because they would, they would, be, uh, they would incur losses if I cannot pay them back. They cannot damage my credit risk because that information is not fed back to credit bureaus. It's not a very guarded or a regulated system. The governments and regulators don't guard it right now because it is so new that people don't even understand. And let alone people, even retailers, fintech providers, and regulators don't understand what exactly is BNPL. Simply said, it's just a loan. It is a loan that is unregulated. And that's what makes me worried. The other interesting thing that I found is that they don't typically charge interest because that's one of the things that we are so cautious of around credit cards is interest you know and it compounds and for people that don't necessarily understand compounding interest it racks up pretty pretty quickly so for companies or business models like BNPL like you mentioned that don't do interest how like what's the business model how do they end up making money they don't make they don't charge interest but they charge fees right and, um, fees could be as high as 35%. Whereas for a credit card, the interest or the APR is the average or the median is 15%. So effectively, all the people, all the shoppers do not see it because they, they like, like you said, they don't charge interest. So I'm good. No, you're not good because you are paying fees. And if you are a delinquent shopper, if you are risky and vulnerable, you may end up paying more than what you would have paid to a credit card company. Talk about, because this is a big concern as well, a lot of these uh, BNPL models, yeah, it's it's at retail outlets or retail shops and stuff where people are making not necessarily huge purchases. It's it's It feels like it's targeting a certain type of shopper. Is that right? Do you think that? Is that right? Yes, these are, they're targeting specific types of shoppers and specific product categories. For example, you will not receive an option of BNPL at the point of sale when you are buying groceries. However, you try buying anything $100 or so. Buy a fan at Walmart or buy a pair of shoes, apparel, accessories. All these are discretionary items. So discretion is where BNPL is targeting. Now, in terms of the customer segments, they are targeting people who are what they call is credit invisible. 
So these are people who usually do not have access to credit cards. These could be like new immigrants in Canada. These people are new, and by definition, they don't. They have not submitted their T4 yet. They don't have. They have not reported uh, their income to Canada Revenue Agency. Invariably, what happens is no bank will offer them credit card. But they could be worthy. Now they want credit. So now the DNPL would target these customers. Similarly, customers who are not who are a, who are not savvy in terms of technology or who cannot manage their credit. Now that is the uh, the negative side of BNPL. So they are trying to basically target customers who for a variety of reasons are constrained on cash or do not have the credit and they provide these credit services to these customers. In a, the, a positive perspective to this suggests that they are helping boost financial inclusion. But the worry that I have is that because people don't know and the BNPL is not regulated, let alone in Canada, it's not regulated in America either and other countries that I've, uh, I've researched. The problem with that is if something goes wrong, shoppers do not know where to go. But that's welcome to the changing landscape of the world. This is something like artificial intelligence. We don't have laws and regulations about AI or the use of AI. Same case with BNPL. That's Vivek Asvan. She's Associate Professor of Quantitative Marketing and Analytics at McGill. Really interesting, I thought, yes. that this whole model of no interest but fees. Like, you miss a payment, they're going to get you. Yeah, and they will get you. Okay, buy now, pay later. You had a great interview uh, just in the previous segment, and we broke down all the fees and all the interest. Yeah. There's a lot to that. Yeah, it's really interesting thing, and you've probably seen this when you go online shopping. You know, like a lot of retailers now, now, we all know about Amazon, we use Amazon credit cards, all that type of stuff. But a lot of online retailers use Amazon web services and sell on their own website, right? And if you go to those websites, there's a lot of companies now that we're starting to see. They advertise, These companies advertise on like Instagram and TikTok and stuff where say you see something you like, a hoodie maybe or a pair of shoes or I don't know, like a, a new lawnmower. It could be anything, disposable goods where they're advertising buy now, pay later. And it, this is not... Not with a credit card. You don't need a credit card to do this. They just want to take your payment in in portions so that it's more accessible. It like gives them more opportunity to sell. It just moves more goods. But one of the things that we were talking about there is they don't charge interest on the payments, but they do charge fees. Yep. And the fees in some cases are way more than the interest. And it's totally unregulated. I'm guilty of this. You've with used a, this, uh, Well, eh? with a company called The Firm. I'll even say it straight up. I bought a Peloton. Okay. <laughs> that's got dust on it, as you can see. But I bought it, and I used the buy now, pay later thing. Yeah, and yeah. And it was a disaster. And then when I wanted to settle up in advance, like, for example, let's say you get a Christmas bonus or something, and right. you want to buy it. Mm-mm, they don't want it. They want it on their structure, on their time, so that they can hit their fees. And so that there is an opportunity that you'll, maybe you'll miss it. Maybe you'll spend Correct. that money on something else, and then you'll miss it. Now, the guest that we were talking to, Vivek Ostvansh, he did say that one of the things that's great about this is called financial inclusion, which is something that I was on aware of, but it's this idea, like we have lots of immigrants that come to this country, maybe they don't have banking records or they don't have the ability to like get a credit card. It helps people in that respect, but there there are definitely some dangers there that we need to be aware of, especially for young people who, you know, there's a reason that they don't give 15 and 14 year olds credit cards, you know, but those people can go on and do buy now, pay later. And instead of buying one thing, buy six and have like a string of payments that, you know, and like I said, it's completely unregulated. The government's not doing anything uh, around this. There's no mm. consumer protection. Like banks are hesitant to even touch this stuff. It's a really good topic. I think we've got to dig into this a little bit more. I wish we had more time to talk about yeah. it because it's it's uh it's something with a lot of trip wires. Yeah, and I mean, I, as I get older, I'm starting to pay more attention to finance. Like I used to be, whatever, it's fine. I just I'll make more money and pay yep. it off and stuff. And now I realize when I, anytime I see something like that, my brain immediately tries to go like, okay, how how are these people trying to get me? That seems too good to be true. How am I going to end up paying more in the long run? And there's a lot of those uh, pitfalls here. So if you're doing the buy now, pay later thing, just be careful. All right. Well, we're going to go from buy now, pay later uh, pitfalls to on the other side of the break, talking about short-term rental pitfalls. Thank you, Scott. We'll you do it again. It. Scott Schantz joining us here on Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The big question around town, the hot topic 
Locally, as well, BC's new short-term rental legislation improved the provincial housing market. It's a it's a question that's got a couple of answers, I think. But to break this down a little bit more, Dr. David Walksmith, uh, Canada Research Chair in Urban Governance and Associate Professor at McGill University School of Urban Planning. Doctor, good morning. Good morning to you. Well, let's get right to it. I mean, in its simplest terms, is this going to make a difference? Absolutely it is. I think we're going to look back and see that what BC is proposing now is going to be the gold standard for how we deal with short-term rentals right across the country. When we talk about it, I think, um, how would I say this best? It, I, I look at your research and I say, okay, it looks like Airbnb's got a lot of rentals out there owned by a few is that a fair thing to say? Like, I'm, a lot of people don't make a ton of money off of Airbnbs. It seems to be these ones that took on a lot of properties to try and make some money that might get hit the hardest. Yeah. So basically, you look at the short-term rental market on Airbnb or other platforms. You've got a lot of people who've got, you know, a home-sharing operation that doesn't do a lot of business, right? You've got a spare bedroom, or maybe you rent your own place when you're out of town. That's most of the people on these platforms, but that's not most of the activity. Most of the action is a small number of uh, commercial operators who are, you know, running a business, and they're the ones who are going to be targeted by the new rules. The new rules will actually probably make it easier if you want to be a home share. They're just going to make it harder if you want to take housing off the market. So a lot of people are just getting the numbers now, and these are, you know, things that have been built in. I'm curious to know within your review, who is behind the review? Like who do, who said we need to get this done? Um, in, in terms of from the provincial government, I, my, my impression is that the province has, you know, the, the new government has really been prioritizing, let's figure out what we can throw at the wall to try to get housing affordability, um, you know, to get housing prices under control. And, you know, short-term rentals are one of the things that are, have been driving up the cost of housing in BC. It's not the only thing, but I think what it makes it stand out is that most of the other issues are kind of long-term problems that are going to be complicated solutions where this is really the low hanging fruit. You know, you've got tens of thousands of homes operating as full-time short-term rentals. Just get them back on the long-term market. they will be housing for BC residents. It's a kind of an easy fix. A lot of people will say, okay, well, you've helped solve that, but you've actually affected something else. Because again, you think of the three major markets that this would affect if this went national, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Vancouver obviously is the one that we're focusing in on here because of the legislation. But will it not affect the tourism industry? Because a lot of people come to Vancouver based on affordability and Airbnb are cheaper than hotels. So will that not affect uh, another arm? Well, here's the thing is that, you know, Vancouver has had you know, rules which make it illegal to operate a commercial short-term rental for years now, right? And so the, those rules have been pretty effective. They've, you know, I, I've worked with the city. We found that, you know, definitely hundreds of homes are kind of back on the long-term market because of those rules. But they're not perfect because it's actually pretty hard for the city to enforce them fully because, for example, they need to figure out, do you really live there or do you not live there? And, you know, they don't necessarily have the kind of detectives, you know, to, to, to track all the information down. What the province is doing is kind of taking a similar set of rules to what has already been in place in Vancouver for years and applying them across the province, but also bringing in the resources of the provincial government. You know, they already have the empty homes, the speculation tax. They already kind of know a lot of the information they need. So I think we should expect to see the same basic story in Vancouver, just a bit more effective. Dr. David Walksmith with McGill University School of Urban Planning joining us here on Mornings with Simi. Uh, doctor, what of all the analytic that you received or you've been able to comb through, what was one thing that maybe stood out to you that you didn't know before you did this survey? Well, okay, so here, so, you know, we've known for a long time that there are a lot of short-term rentals in BC and, and they're, you know, they're having an impact on housing availability, they're having an impact on housing affordability. Um, I think what, what really stands out is actually the extent to which, you know, this is not just a problem, say, like in downtown Vancouver. Um, you know, every municipality basically in the province, certainly every municipality in the lower mainland, is have, you know, kind of like has to figure out this issue. And one thing we could have done was waited for every single municipality to get their own rules in place, figure out how to do their own enforcement, um, you know, and, and we'd be waiting forever. And so what the province has done instead is said, here's one set of rules, they'll apply to the whole province, cities are free to do their own thing on top of that, but they've set a kind of a really solid baseline which says, if you live in the home, you can operate it as an Airbnb, if you don't live in the home, um, then you can't. And just applying that for the whole province 
instead of letting every single municipality kind of figure out how to do this, I think it's just a really smart idea. Yeah, it takes it gets things moving as opposed to sitting around waiting for the jurisdictions to get their act together. Exactly. Doctor, thank you for your time today. I do appreciate it. I know you got lots of things to do, but uh, thank you for making time for us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's one conversation to have with a child when, you know, you're comfortable having it. But what about a question from your child when you're not prepared for it? For example, something like, hey, dad or hey, mom, what's going on with this war that I keep seeing online? Or what about this war that I heard about at school? And now you've got to be the person to sit down and perhaps have a conversation with them. There was a wonderful article that I crossed paths with just the other day from Alex Kingsbury. He's an editor at large with the New York Times, and he wrote an opinion piece on whether or not he was going to have this conversation with his young daughter. And Alex is kind enough to join me this morning. Alex, good morning. Rob, happy to be here. Well, let's get into this, because obviously we see things going on in Ukraine. We see things that are happening right now in Gaza. And the kids, they're not, uh, you know, completely shielded to this. So walk me through the potential to have that conversation with your daughter. Yeah, I mean, I think the operative word there in your questions are are that we see, you know, we see these things uh, in a whole bunch of different places, on our phones, on the computer, on the television. Um, and if we see them, then our kids can see them, too. Look, my, my seven-year-old's in second grade here in New York City, and uh, she goes to school with people from Israel, people from uh, from Palestine, and, and all over the world. And uh, when she comes home, she does her math homework on an iPad sometimes. And, you know, the, the ghastly images from conflicts around the globe are just a few few finger swipes away. So in in a strange way, the you know, our children have as much uh, access to, to the brutalities and realities of war uh, that adults do. And, and so that's that's really never happened before. And so as parents, we're sort of you know, navigating this this unknown territory with uh, without a lot of guidance on how to do it. You've got a really unique uh, perspective as a parent, because as a journalist, you've covered the war in Iraq. And I would imagine that having those images still, you know, scarred in your mind are probably part of the reasons that maybe that's a tough conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd think or or, or I would think anyway, that, uh, you know, I'd be totally prepared to to deal with this as somebody who gets paid to to go to wars and think about them and write about them and and when this came up uh with my daughter i was i was pretty flat-footed you know she said what you know what what's a war and are there any going on right now and how come i'm hearing about it um and you know what i what i realized was that you we really lack a vocabulary to talk to to children especially about wars because we often lack it ourselves i mean how do you describe the reasons uh, for a country going to war and, and what death is like and how, you know, how arbitrary conflict can be in terms of who suffers and, and who's on, uh, you know, the receiving end of so much violence. And so, you know, this is something that I think all of us struggle to talk to adults about. And so kids uh, are a unique challenge because they just don't have a frame of reference that adults do for understanding these uh, these large forces at play in their world. You wrote a piece uh, that was a couple of days removed, and I thought your last line of your story was beautiful. You said, it is only fortunate children who ask questions about war. Far too many others have seen it firsthand enough that they can answer their own questions. And and that really resonated with me as somebody that lives in Canada, a, a country that's been relatively free of war, knock on wood. Um, what made you write that specific line? Was it the fact that you've been there and you've seen children who have had that question answered for them? Yeah, I think that was part of it. And and look, uh, you know, my our, this, this, fortunately, this, this isn't such an issue in Canada, but here in the United States, you know, kids as young as kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they, they do active shooter drills where they prepare for gunmen to come into their schools and, and you know, and, and do terrible things. So these, these are kids who are acclimated to violence at a very young age, even if they don't understand it. Now, of course, wars is a little different. Um but it's not, you know, we, we feel very far away from it, and yet we're often very close to killing in, in ways that uh, that we find, uh, you know, deeply unsettling. Um, and in terms of that, that last line, I thought it was sort of a good way to end it and at least acknowledge how privileged uh, we are to live in the relative safety of, of the United States. Um, but I wasn't prepared for some of the response that I got to this column, and one of them was from a fellow I've known for 20 years. He's in Israel. He has a child the same age as mine. Um, and he wrote me this very poignant email, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to share it without sharing his name. And he said, you know, all of the questions that your daughter raised, mine are also raising, but we have the added 
burden of having to explain to her uh, at some point why one of her classmates is been kidnapped by Hamas and is holding them hostage in Gaza. And so that is a conversation I'm definitely not prepared for. And, and it was part of, you know, a lot of responses that I got that were very thoughtful to this, uh, to this piece of writing. Alex Kingsbury is an editor at large with the New York Times joining us here on Mornings with Simi. Um, the other question that I had for you, I've been to New York City and I know the Jewish population, it's very prominent. You can see it when you work in certain or when you walk, part of me, in certain parts of that city. How would you, and I don't know if you have to have this conversation, but maybe if I was to kind of put this at your feet, how would you answer this? Uh, you know, Israel's portrayed by many in the States and, and in Canada as well as, quote, the good guys and the the Palestinians obviously don't have that same light shone on them. How do you have that conversation with your daughter if she was to come to you and say, well, what about the Palestinian side of things? Uh, you know, I think one of the fortunate things about living in, in New York is that you hear it from people directly and you hear how they sort of feel about it. And we live in a very, very diverse community that has, uh, you know, Jewish people of all sort of political bents who have very, you know, um, different views on the conflict and the the current government there and 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 war in general i mean one of the things that i was sort of heartened by was how our own little school community came together around these events in support of both uh you know israelis and palestinians who are in the the system Hmm. um and there was some concern on friday was supposed to be a global you know day of revolt or uh, you know global jihad and a lot of parents were were scared about sending their kids to school and one of the parents who was was actually in the idf before he came to the united states uh said you know we're we're not going to let violence uh, tear apart this community like it like it has often in israel and we're sending our kids to school um and i think that you know won over a lot of parents to sort of get the sense that we're all in this together whatever side you're on yeah and, and i just want to circle back one more time alex just on your experiences in covering this because you know we, we've talked about your relationship with your daughter and, and how you explain it but maybe now we can just pull the lens back a little bit and just talk about it in generalities you've you've seen uh you know firsthand how it affects communities how it affects you know geography when it comes to these people could you maybe put it in perspective for our listeners um gaza in particular because iraq is relatively large but people were still trying to get to different countries to get out of harm's way. Gaza is such a little area. And I I was trying to explain it the other day that, you know, Israel is even a small country, but Gaza is just this little strip that right now has, it's almost too small for war, if that makes any sense. It does. And, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, not in many ways, there's not a lot there. People can't escape. You know, this is this is a, a, a closed area in which a war is being being waged. But for many people, uh, most people who are involved in wars, um, when it comes to your neighborhood, you know, you, you don't really think about a country and you don't even think about a region. You think about your block, you know, and how the war uh, affects the people that you know and see every day in the same way that we think about sort of our neighborhood. We live in cities, but we live in very small parts. And, you know, humans are creatures of habit and operate in a, in a pretty small uh, geographic place with, a, you know, a small number of people. And so when war comes and visits that and when violence uh, impacts those communities, it's intensely personal. And so, you know, your daily life is uprooted, your your families are destroyed, you know, the, the infrastructure around you is destroyed and the things you rely on, like water and electricity to you know, keep your refrigerator going and that sort of really basic day-to-day stuff. Um, and so it, 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 it resonates in a way that's so much more about daily life than it is about these larger political issues um, that it just makes it all the more tragic, really, when you think about it. Well, I'll tell you what, I was looking forward to this conversation all morning, and it definitely lived up to my hopes. Alex, let's, uh, let's speak again. Thank you for your time today. Anytime. Happy to be here. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I love books that are kind of quirky and out there. And you think of the history of Canada when it comes to trade with, you know, the United States and even within Canada at times. There's a great new book out there uh, from Ryan Manuka, lawyer and author of Booze, Cigarettes and Constitutional Dust-Ups, Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade. Ryan, kind enough to join me this morning. Ryan, good morning. Morning, Rob. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I love the fact that we're going to be talking margarine today because it is a remarkable story that you were able to put into the National Post. So, give me the story of Canada and the challenges with margarine. Yeah, absolutely. Margarine's a fascinating uh, issue. You know, it goes back to the mid 1800s. Developed in France to sort of deal with a food shortage there. Uh, scientists put it together. It uses, I mean, if you look at the early formation of margarine, it was kind of a little messy. 
Um, but um, what ended up happening was in the in the debates in the 1880s, um, there were a collection of MPs who mainly came from dairying dairying ridings, and they were on a on, a, on, a, on an effort to sort of ban the substance from sale inside of Canada. And, you know, some of their arguments, you know, we can go back into the Hansard debates. We had an MP from Wellington in Ontario that said, it, you know, he was very clear, detracts from the profits of agriculturalists. And then you had some others, John Wood in Brockville, he calls it a dangerous article of food. And another guy, Spruill, who said, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's better to, you know, deal with this before vested interests get into place. And so there were two ways you thought about it. It was like a consumer protection argument. Folks were getting deceived into buying margarine they thought was butter. We don't know how they're making the margarine. But then it was also underlying all this. Maybe, you know, let's protect the barriers of, of our ridings. I, I love that deceit is a part of the word because margarine is one of the, I think of all the foods that are out there, it might be one that openly admits that it's deceiving you. And it's amazing to see how this story progresses through the generations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, margarine was pretty much banned in Canada through it until 1949, so almost 70 years. And uh, there was a little brief hiatus during World War One, but for the most part, it was banned. And even after 1949, when the ban was brought down at the federal level, you still had, you know, Quebec and PEI still having full-blown bans in their provinces till the mid '60s. Uh, and in fact, the margarine. Um, sort of scrofuffle in Quebec extended even beyond then. And, you know, in 1987, we had Quebec prohibit colored margarine. So, you know, it had to still look white and unappetizing. It couldn't come close to what uh, the look of uh, butter had. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of mapped onto what we were seeing in the United States, too, this, this reaction, you know, make butter as, or margarine as unpalatable as possible. Um, but yeah, it's been an intergenerational saga. I mean, it's, un, it's, it's undergone significant reformulations over the years, you know, to the point where you can't believe that it's not butter. But I have a question for you, Ryan, and this is just guy to guy. How does one get onto this kind of a topic? I mean, I get booze, I get cigarettes, but margarine for me, I mean, you got to go down some pretty significant rabbit holes, no? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the story has... <laughs> the story of interprovincial trade in Canada is fascinating, and it's, it's found in Canada's products um, that we, we buy and sell every day, goods and services. And the, the most recent, you know, with, when it comes to butter, there was a big trade battle in 2004. It was between Western Canada, you know, Canada's soybean capital, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, versus, versus Quebec. And it's fascinating to see that kind of battle play out. 90% of canola produced out in three western, those three western provinces, and uh, they've captured 45% of the margarine, uh, uh, you know, process. You know, margarine is made up of predominantly canola versus Quebec's, you know, dairy industry, Quebec and eastern Canada, I should say, more broadly. And it's a fascinating tale. You take butter, you take you downfill duvet cover, you take Canada's trucking. Uh, all of our products, it really shows Canada is in... You know, it's it's we're a federation, but we're also one that respects uh, provincial jurisdiction. And because of that, we have this clash. You know, we march behind the same flag at the uh, Olympics and wear the same uniform in terms of war. And yet it's harder to sometimes trade with our compatriots than it is with international counterparties. You talked about margarine. You talked about booze. You talked about cigarettes in all of your studies as you were getting into, you know, authoring this. What was one outside of maybe margarine? where you're kind of like, you know what, this is quirky enough to write about? <laughs> no, that's, that's a good question. I mean, the, the one is um, Canada's construction codes. And that's one that's very technical, very, you know, it's, there's a lot of very, very sophisticated and, and very expert uh, folks who um, are in charge of provincial and then the national regulation of codes across Canada. But small changes and small variations between two jurisdictions, whether it be in how you certify gas fitters or whether or not the HVAC systems in one province or another are they're compatible, hmm. can really make a big difference. And you know, uh, it's it's a it, you know it's definitely not as sexy as the topic of booze and cigarettes. But Canada's construction code is one of those frontiers for interprovincial trade irritants for sure. Well, I love it. I just thought it was really great. And uh, Bianca this morning brought it up and she says, you know what, we should talk about it. And I said, absolutely. I'm always up for talking about, quote, butter's lesser sibling. So thank you for the time today, Ryan. What a great conversation. 
It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. Ryan Minuchair, lawyer and author of, and you should check this one out, Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dust-Ups, Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade. You know, it's it's kind of cool because when you're in school, you always think about the, the obvious ones. You know, you think about prohibition, you think about the things that were tough to get across, you know, borders. Like, even recently, I think we could talk about the, the BC-Alberta wine wars, for lack of a better phrase. But it's been going on for like years and generations and generations. And I didn't realize this until Bianca pointed it out that when it came to margarine, just to circle back on this one more time, that they actually wanted people to make it more yellow so that it didn't look so much like butter so that there was more of a differentiation between the two. It's little stuff like that that I totally get a kick out of. And that happened in Quebec uh, because, again, they were trying to protect their dairy industry. And a lot of people in the dairy industry were like, hey, man, this is really undercutting us right now. Looks just like us, kind of tastes like us and is a lot cheaper. And I think there's going to be a lot more people that go for this. But I can't even remember the last time that I've used margarine. I, like realistically, maybe I knew, did it and didn't even know it. But I mean, I'm big about the block of butter, even though it's a real pain in the you know what, when you got to take it out of the wrapper block of butter, the last like third of it, forget about it. Hey, here's a question for you. Maybe we'll save it for another show. When you buy a block of butter, do you take it out and put it in the tray or do you just take it out as you need it from the wrapper? Because the wrapper for me is such a pain in the butt. My grandmother used to have like a really fancy butter. What do you call that? Like a butter dish, I guess. When you put the thing on top of it, fine china. I was like all that for a slab of butter. But now, now, I mean, you'd probably want that because what is it like eight bucks a log or whatever it is. Anyway, and by the way, nobody calls it a log. There's no logs of butter out there.